I don't want just another church service. I want God to move. I want him to show up. Um, but we've been in this series, this fourth week of this series called Revival. And the word we've been looking at for revive, the Hebrew word that we take this from. How many have been with me for a couple of the weeks of this? So, All right, well, hold on, hold on a second. Because I want to say, I want you to say this Hebrew word with gusto. I want you to say it loud and proud. Bring that up for me there, please. Y'all ready? Yeah, see, I, I've been told by a resident Jewish woman uh, that you're supposed to add a little hurrah, but we're going to keep it redneck. <laughs> to us, it sounds like a karate chop. Hayah. Here's what it means to live, cause to live, to stir up or rekindle as a fire, to recover from a state of neglect, obscurity, or depression, to refresh with joy or hope. Man, does our country not need that? Come on. Uh, not just our country. Let's keep it locally. Does our community not need that? This church needs that. This church needs something rekindled in it. There was a time, listen, and I'm going to go off script a little bit. Those that have been part of this church, there was a time when this church was known for just the power of God sweeping through this place and falling. And somewhere along the line, we've kind of settled. And we thought, we, we thought well, well, people don't want that. Can I tell you, uh, I, I read an article two weeks ago. The fastest growing churches right now are Pentecostal and Charismatic. Because this generation actually wants to see God move, not just us talk about it. And we need a rekindling of that. I, I'm actually excited about today because here's why. When I look across this room, out over this room, do you know what I see? Be careful. Here's what I see. Potential. I see the potential in people that revival could break out in your homes, your communities, your workplaces. I see potential. It's inside of us. And I believe there's so much untapped potential that is lying dormant that God wants to revive in every person in this room. With that being said, anybody heard of a guy named David Goggins? I knew you would. Yeah. He is a retired Navy SEAL, and to say he's a marathon runner would be an understatement. He runs some ridiculous. In fact, I'm going to talk about one of those. In, in his memoir, Can't Hurt Me, David shares the story of wanting to compete in this grueling race called Badwater. To be able to even compete in this race one of the qualifying things is you had to run 100 miles in a 24-hour period. Run, 24, not drive, run 100 miles in a 24-hour period. Goggins did it. A few days later, still injured, barely able to walk from the 100-mile run, Goggins goes to Las Vegas Marathon to support his wife, and his mom. And he said, I'm there. I'm going to run, but I'm not really going to compete. I'm just there. You know, if I make it, I'm good. Here's what he said. Here's the, the description of what happened that day. The three of us towed up with the masses as the clock struck 7 a.m. Someone got on the mic to begin the official countdown. 10, 9, 8. 
when the, when the clock hit one, a horn sounded. He says, something clicked inside of me. I still don't know what it was. He said, perhaps I underestimated my competitive spirit. Maybe it was because I knew Navy SEALs were supposed to be the toughest people in the world. We were supposed to run on broken legs and fractured feet, or so went the legend I'd bought in too long ago. He says, whatever it was, something triggered, and the last thing I remember is seeing, seeing as the horn echoed down the street was the shock and concern on my wife and my mom's face as I charged down the boulevard. With stress fractures in his feet and his medial tendons still wobbly after being wrapped in special bandages just to stabilize his ankles, Goggins finished the first mile in seven minutes and 10 seconds. He keeps running. He finishes the first 6.2 miles in 43 minutes. He keeps running. When he gets to mile 13, the official clock indicated that he was in the hunt to qualify for the Boston Marathon. He keeps running. At mile 18, he says he hit a wall, but he kept running. At mile 22, he had fallen off pace by 30 seconds, but he was still in the hunt to qualify for the Boston Marathon. But the next four miles would have to be his very best. He finished the marathon in just over three minutes and eight seconds, qualifying for the Boston Marathon one week after running 100 miles in a 24-hour period. Here's what I really want you to hear today. Goggin writes that when he finished the marathon, as he sat on a patch of grass waiting for his wife and mom to finish, coming to his mind was a simple question he could not shake. The question was this, what am I capable of? What am I capable of? Let me ask you, have you ever had this desire inside of you? These dreams, these big plans inside of you. But when you look at your dreams, your plans, and you look at the gifts and the talents you've been given, there's not a connection. Are you following me? It, like, like you've got a million-dollar dream with an overdrawn bank account budget. Anybody know? I mean, have you ever felt like God gave you all these dreams, all these aspirations, but then held out on giving you the ability? Come on, let's be honest. I mean, for example, like we played ball last, last Sunday, and I'm not a great ball player. I, I play ugly, I, I, I play, but I play. It's an exercise that I enjoy, so I do it. And, you know, Brent's coming to play tonight with us. And, and I said, hey, man, how you doing? He said, hey, I don't talk to my opponents on game day. I said, well, let's be fair. You're not really an opponent. <laughs> so... so. But I don't. I mean, when I played in the Christian League, they called me the Dennis Rodman of the Christian League because I played, yeah, exactly. Oh, because it got ugly. It got ugly. But I enjoy playing. But, and the truth of it is this. I would love to be able to walk out on the court and hit, hit three-pointers like Steph Curry and then do his dance. Man, don't think, I, w I would love to be able to dunk the ball like Zion Williamson. If I could do that, pe people that I play ball with would hate me. I would never shoot. I would just dunk the ball. But there's a problem. 
uh, those things I would love to be able to do. But on, my, on a good day, I am 5'10". And I suffer from a disease, white man's disease. So I want to, but I can't. I, here's the truth. My brother Chris, this guy puts out blogs like nobody's business. I'm like, how in the world does he find a time to write? I would love to be able to do that, write these blogs, put out these posts. But what I've learned to do is just share them. Because I sit down to write, and I'm thinking, man, it's going to be good. Not today. I mean, do you get my point? Because I said all that to say this, I am absolutely convinced of this. No matter where you're at in life, whether you're in middle school or whether you're retired, no matter how much talent, abilities you think you have or think you don't have, no matter where you grew up or didn't grow up, whether you grew up in church hearing about Jesus or you grew up somewhere else and not even knowing anything about him, whether you think you've got it all or think you've got nothing to give, I am convinced of this, that there is so much untapped potential inside of you that God wants to revive. Convinced of it. And that's, listen, that's not some positive, motivational TED Talk stuff. That's me. I'm serious. Well, Kelly, I I don't, I just don't believe that. I, I don't see it. Well, let me say this. Just because you don't believe it, just because you can't see it, doesn't mean God didn't put it there. God created you with a purpose, on purpose, for a purpose. It is in your DNA. Are you hearing me? I mean, when you think about, but let's look at the disciples. Anybody think the disciples, when God chose them, or when Jesus chose them, that they knew the potential they had in them? Anybody think the disciples were like, man, we're going to be world changers. It's going to be written about us. They're going to write about us. Hey, we are the ones that turned the world upside down. Maybe Peter thought that. But the rest of them, because he was a little cocky, come on. No, they didn't think that at all. In fact, when you look at the 12 disciples that Jesus chose, these were 12 very young men. Let me see. Anybody here between the ages of 15 and 18? Stand up for me. Just stand up real quick. Just stand up. Any young, yeah, stand up. Any, any guys, any young men? No, no, I mean girls too, girls too. I don't want to be this. This is the age. When, when you look, go, you can go ahead and be seated. Thank you. Thank you, brave souls. This is the age why, and while there are no specific scriptures that say this was the age of the disciples, when you look at the culture of that time, in that time period, a Jewish man got a wife after the age of 18. There was only one of Jesus' disciples that had a wife. Who was it? Peter. Now you know why he was so mouthy. Amen. He was mouthy out there because when he went back home, it was just, whatever you say, babe. Whatever you say, I'll do whatever you want. No. Little humor, come on now. And as a Jewish child, get this, when you turned 15, your education was over. Unless you came from a, from, from, from a very wealthy family or they considered you one of the best and brightest students. And if you were considered one of the best and brightest students, then what they would say, hey, let's find you a rabbi to study under. And then, but that wasn't it. 
that easy because you would find a rabbi. That rabbi would then put you through this test to see if you were worthy of being one of his students. And, and so if you weren't considered worthy, then in your mid to late teens, you got put into the workforce. You were put in the workforce. And usually that meant a family business. And here's why I give you that history, that, that culture lesson. Jesus didn't pick these 12 young men because they were the best and the brightest. Are you hearing me? He didn't pick them because they had all these great gifts and abilities. He didn't pick them because they were some prominent family. No, Jesus picked what we would call just average Joes. And with those average Joes, he started a revolution with them. How did, how, how, how did he do that? Because he was able to tap into something that was inside of them, had been placed inside of them from birth, but had been buried deep. But he was able to pull it out. They didn't even know the potential was there. And I, I believe they were living what they thought was the rest of their life like a lot of you. This is just life. This is what I saw my mom and dad do. This is what I saw my grandparents do. And they were doing something they believed was just their lot in life, something they were destined to do, fish. And then Jesus enters the picture saying, hey, there's something greater inside of you. And he pulled that greatness out of them little by little. Jesus took 12 ordinary average young men, started a revolution with them. What can he do with us? Come on. As your pastor, here's what I really need you to understand. If you call this home and be your pastor, you need to hear me. You, God did not save you just so that you could occupy a seat on Sundays. God did not save you just so you could get your get out of hell card. He saved you. He chose you because he knows that God planted something deep inside of you that needed to be drawn out. You don't even know it's there, but it is life and world-changing qualities that he wants to draw out of you. Casey was talking to CR a few weeks ago, and he said uh, something that really stuck out to me. And I'm actually going to use a quote by famed poet Casey Goins. Um, Here's what he said. A lot of people think that if you're sober, you have arrived. And we, need, we neglect other parts of our lives and end up spiritual, living spiritually poor. Being sober is not the ceiling. God has a purpose that extends way past sobriety into a future you could never have dreamed of for yourself. Can I tell you, getting saved is not the ceiling? Are you hearing me? Getting to sing, or this is not the ceiling up here. Definitely being a pastor is not the ceiling. There is so much been placed inside everybody in here. But if we settle for a Sunday Christianity, nothing will ever change. Nothing will ever change in our communities, in our families. Because this is not the ceiling. There's more. I'm going to be in a couple different places in the Bible today, but if you're, if you're uh, with me, you got a, 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 um, 
bulletin or a regular Bible, regular Bible. You've got a, if you've got a one in your hand, I don't even know what I'm trying to say. A Bible, Bible, Matthew 15. If not, we're going to put it up here on the screen. Uh, give you a little backstory. Uh, Jesus is dealing with these Pharisees and teachers of the religious law. They're questioning. They're scrutinizing everything him and his disciples does. They're asking him questions like, hey, Jesus, why don't your disciples wash their hands before they eat? I mean, it's just ridiculous. They're just looking at just anything they can get to scrutinize Jesus. And, and so they ask Jesus questions. Well, Jesus, in typical fashion, he responds to their question with a question. It flusters them. It gets them all uh, flustered up. And then he turns to the people that are listening to this conversation between the Pharisees, religious teachers, and Jesus. He turns to them and says, hey, gather in. These Pharisees, they worship me with their lips. They say the right things, but their heart is so far from me. He said, fact, then he goes and says this, these guys, that's the blind leading the blind. They think they're trying to lead you, and they don't even know where they're going themselves. And then his disciples turned to him. I mean, you can read all this, Matthew 15. His disciples like, hey, Jesus, uh, I think you offended the Pharisees when you said those things. Um, if you're not careful, they're going to cancel you. And uh, some of y'all, <laughs> thank you. Thank you, Sheridan. Thank you. And Jesus is like, hey, I don't have time to worry about that. I don't have, to, I don't have time to debate. I'm about to lose my balance. I don't have time to debate semantics. I don't have time to go back and forth with somebody on Facebook. I know what God's called me to do. I'm the one that's going to have to answer to the Father. So I'm going to be about my Father's business and do what he's called me to do. And then he goes from there and heals this woman's demon-possessed daughter. He's like, I offend him. That's all right. I've got work to do. And that's where we're going to jump in today, Matthew 15, starting with verse 29. Jesus left there, went along the Sea of Galilee, then he went up on a mountainside and sat down. Great crowds came to him, bringing the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others, laid them at his feet, and he healed them. Verse 31, the people were amazed when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled made well, the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they praised the God of Israel. This is all setting up the miracle we're going to look at. Verse 32, Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion for these people. They have already been with me three days. They have nothing to eat, and I do not want to send them away hungry, or they may collapse on the way. Here's what we need to understand. This isn't what Jesus is about to do. It's not about him showing how powerful he is. It's not about him putting the Pharisees in, the play, in their place. Jesus is telling his disciples, what I'm getting ready to do, there's a why. There's a why behind it. Here's the why. I have compassion for them. I have compassion for them. That, that, the Greek word for compassion there literally means to be moved from your inwards, from the bowels. And Jesus said, I feel deeply for these people. And, and here's the thing, church. We can pray 
and pray and pray as a church and as individuals for God to give us influence in our communities with people at work, at school and neighborhoods. But here's the truth. While we want God to give us more influence, God wants to give us more compassion. Are you hearing me? So who are the people you genuinely care for? And I'm not talking about relatives, close friends. Who are the people or the people group that you really care about? Because if we do not have compassion for people, why in the world would God give us influence with people? Are you hearing me, church? So I want to give you three ways to revive the untapped potential in your life. You're taking notes. First one is this. Enlarge your circle. Enlarge it. You've heard me talk, uh, most of you, about, give the testimony about when God began to call us from being worship pastors back home to being pastors. When I first approached Denise, after I finally, God had been dealing with me for a year, finally gave in, I came home to talk to Denise, said, hey, God's calling us back home to be pastors. And one of the things Denise said to me was, Kelly, you don't even like people. And I think that's a qualification if you're going to be a pastor. I think somewhere. And she was right. I had my small circle of people that I, I allowed into my life, people I cared about. And I knew, God, if you're calling me to pastor, I know this is true about me. So you're going to have to enlarge my circle. You're going to, and I began to pray, God, let me see people the way you see them. Let me love people the way you love them. God, enlarge my circle. Let me care about people. And God, now, I've still got a long way to go, but from where I started at 11 years ago to today, God has enlarged my circle tremendously and keeps enlarging it. And maybe you need to ask God to increase your circle of compassion. Increase your ability to love out, others outside of the small circle that you made around yourself. See, here's the truth. There are some here that your circle is so small, you barely fit, fit into it yourself. Are you hearing me? In the church, we like to come up with phrases. One of the top five phrases that we like to use in the church world is this, when we hear, when somebody comes to us or tells us something that's going on, hey, I'll be praying for you. Hey, I'll be agreeing with you. And we come up with those phrases because we think by saying that, that alleviates us from any responsibility from there on out. Oh, really, you got that going on? I'll, I'll be praying for you. And you know good and well, once you leave there, you... Or you walk away from, Lord, I don't want to lie to them, so Lord, Lord, please, please touch them. Then you forget about it. How do you know that? Because I've done it. I've done it. But we do that. Well, we, we create this culture. But the thing is, if we're going to call ourselves Christians, meaning like Christ, we need to do what Jesus did. Jesus didn't just look at this group of people and say, hey, I'm going to be agreeing with you that you get fed. I'm going to pray for you that, that, that something happens. No, he was moved out of compassion, and he actually acted on that compassion. Luke 9, the almost exact same miracle takes place, except this time 
I love the disciples because they're so human. They try to get ahead of Jesus on this one. They're tired. They're worn out. They just got back from a mission trip. And uh, Jesus, they're wanting to tell Jesus about everything that went on and happened. Jesus knows they're tired. Jesus knows they're exhausted. So he takes them to this place that's normally quiet, away uh, for some much-needed rest. Well, the people find out, hey, I hear Jesus is here. I hear Jesus. And it word spread. Before they knew it, there was thousands of people gathered in their quiet, secluded place. So they're like, oh, man. I know how Jesus is compassionate. Let's try to get, let's try to get ahead of this. Hey, Jesus, why, why don't you kind of end the meeting early today? It's getting dark. And uh, they're hungry. They need to feed their families. Let's send them away so they can feed their families. And Jesus knowing they're tired. Jesus knowing they're exhausted, but also knows there's so much more inside them that they don't even know is there. He looks at them, and when they say, hey, won't you send them away? Jesus says, oh, they're hungry? Why don't you feed them? Anybody be honest and say, hey, if I was a disciple there that day and I was tired, exhausted, and trying, I'd, I'd be a little frustrated with Jesus. I mean, I'd be like, hey, Jesus, Jesus, come on, come on. We know this is your thing. We know you can do this without us. Come on, come on. Let, why don't you do it? It'd be a lot easier if you just did it yourself. But here's what Jesus knows. Jesus knows my time with these guys is about up. And I need them to recognize the potential that has been placed deep inside of them to make them world changers and start this revolution. I need them to see that even when they think they've got nothing left to give, there's still something there. I mean, let me tell you. Here, how does Jesus pull that out of them? You got, you got to find the humor in it. Here's how Jesus pulls it out. By giving them a task so big that they know there is no way they can do it. No way. Can I tell you that's what Jesus wants to do for you? Uh, well, that doesn't sound too enticing to me. I'm telling you, Jesus wants to give, give you a life so big, a dream so big, that you need him every single day to accomplish it. You've got to have him every single day. I tell people, listen, if you can accomplish that God dream on your own, it ain't a God dream. It, it's got to be to the point where, God, there's no way I can do it. I know. That's why you're going to have to rely on me every day. See, see guys, listen, here's, here's the truth. The problems that are in our communities, the addiction rate, the, the divorce rate, the sex trafficking, abortion rate, the overall lies that are getting fed to our children on a daily basis, those things are too big for us to settle for such small lives. Come on. Watch bar. We cannot afford to continue living such small lives. We cannot afford to continue living complacent and settled lives. We must begin to live the life God created for us. And it starts by enlarging our circles. Why? Because here's the truth. Before people meet Jesus, they meet you. You're a representative of Jesus. 
You. You. And it's time that you and I, this church as a body, we quit living such small-minded lives. and we, be, we begin to live the life that God has called us to live. And it starts with enlarging our circle. I'm telling you, so we, need to we need to enlarge our racial circles. Our political circles. You know, one of the, I, I, I hate election time. You know why? Because I see Christians get on there and put their commitment to a politi political party above their commitment to God. This, uh, I don't care if you shout or not, that's true. And they will argue, they will fight, they will cuss you out, they'll do everything, and then, then they'll defriend you because you don't believe and what you're doing you're making your circle smaller and you're only wanting people in your life that'll tell you what you want to hear I didn't say it at 9 a.m. so that's free let's go on second thing you've got to do own what you have own what you have Jesus sees the people they're hungry he has compassion on them verse 33 his disciples, they ask a very sincere question. Where could we get enough uh, bread in this remote place to feed such a crowd? I think that's an honest question. We're in the middle of nowhere. God, where are we going to get enough to eat? Hey, God, it's Tuesday. You know on Tuesdays, Uncle Gus and Twister's closed. Where are we going to get anything to eat? If you, only you know that if you live around here anyway. Whoa. These people, where, where are we going to get enough food to feed the people that you want us to feed? And look what Jesus says. How many loaves do you have? The Bible says there were 4,000 men. That doesn't include the women and children. And Jesus doesn't look at them and say, don't worry, guys, I got this. You know what I bring to the table. Jesus looks at him and says, hey, hey, what do you bring to the table? What do you have? What do you got that I can use? And they says, seven bread and a few small fish. Seven and a few small fish. This lets me know they were very aware of how little they had. They were very aware that they did not have enough for what Jesus was asking them to do. I mean, they're including details like, oh, we only have a few small fish. Like, if it was a few big fish, they would have been able to feed that many people. <laughs> Jesus says, hey, what do you have? A few small fish. That's all we've got. Church, we do that. We do the same thing. God begins to call us and tell us to do things or get us out of our comfort zone. And our response is, this is all I got. I've just got a few small fish. It's not much. It's not great, but there's really not much here, Lord. It's all I got. But here's what Jesus was trying to get across to his disciples. And what what's bar we need to understand is this. When all that you have is given to God, it becomes more than enough. When you bring all that you have, whatever it is, to God, 
and say, here it's yours. It becomes more than enough. See, we look at our lives. We look at our abilities and talents that, that God has placed in us, and we say things like, well, I'm only this. I'm only that. I only have this much education. I only know this much. I don't talk well. When we say those things, what we're doing is undermining and devaluing what God has placed in us. There's a reason I don't talk uh, as proper as other preachers. Because for some unknown reason, God, somebody in 10 Mile, Tennessee, needs this southern pastor that just says whatever comes off the top of his head to say it. You know, don't devalue. Don't devalue what God has given you. I used to, I mean, I, and I still do, I hate listening to myself on on, on podcasts or recordings. Because I listen to them like, dude, you are the biggest redneck I've ever heard in my life. Talk better than that. And I'm like, I've been, I've thought, I'm 55 years old. It's too late for that. Just roll with it. What you think is small or not worth mentioning or bringing up is more than enough when you put it in the hands of Jesus. See, the reality is there are a lot of people here today, a lot of people online, you really do want to do great things for God. You, you really do want to make a difference, make an impact. But you keep telling God, all I've got is a few fish. I really do want to be used by God, but look where I came from. Look at my family. I don't even know who my real daddy is. I really do want God to use me. But half my life, I've been an addict. I've stole from people. I've lied to people. And now that's the label put on me. I really do want to have purpose. But I've got nothing to bring to the table. I really do want to be used of God. But Kelly, I've been divorced three, four, five times. What do I have to bring to the table? Here's what I'll tell you. I know this from experience. When God begins to call you and lead you and you see just a glimpse of what he's trying to do in you, you will always feel inadequate. You will always feel like you're not enough and don't have what it takes. And those that feel like, hey, they do have what it takes, those that feel like they are adequate, I oftentimes wonder, what could God do with them if they got outside of their comfort zone and said, okay, God, here. The moment you step in and begin to pursue what God's calling you to do or be, you're going to feel like you don't have what it takes. You're going to feel like you're not smart enough. You don't look the part. You're not good enough. You're not talented enough. You're going to feel like you're not enough, period. Guys, listen, when, when you start feeling overwhelmed by the little that you feel like you have and the big that God is calling you to do, when you feel that way, but you go to God and say, God, I believe you have a purpose on my, in my life. I believe you're calling me to something greater, but this is all I have, and it's not much, but I'm giving it to you. When we come with that attitude, that's where God shines. I mean, that's where he shines. That begins to work. That's what he's waiting to hear. It's like, here, God, it's broken. It's a mess. It's, it's all I got. God said, I've been waiting for you to hand that over. I'm telling you, it's only when you own what you have that you can give it to God. Let's get back to the story, verse 36. 
Jesus tells the crowd, hey, have a seat. Then he, then he took the seven loaves and the fish. When he had given thanks, he broke them, gave them to the disciples, and they in turn to the people. Something happens in that verse. And I want to see, does this happen also in the other miracle over in Luke 9? Let's look at that real quick. See if you can pick it up. Verse 14 through 16. Jesus said to the disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. The disciples did so. Everyone sat down. That was a miracle in itself. Um, let's Taking the five loaves and the two fish, looking up to heaven, Jesus gave thanks, broke them. Then he gave them to the disciples to distribute to the people. Anybody see what happened in both miracles? No, no. He does have both miracles. But here's what I want you to see. When, when we hear this story told, it's told that Jesus fed the 5,000. Jesus fed the 4,000 plus. But that's not what it says. It says he broke it, gave it to the disciples, and the disciples fed 5,000 plus 4,000 plus. The disciples did that. And I, tell, I hope you're getting this because up to that point, they didn't know that kind of potential was inside them. They didn't know they had what it took. All they did in both situations was come to Jesus saying, this is all I have, Jesus. And Jesus takes all they have, transforms it, gives it back to them, multiplied. Amen. Man, I'm preaching better than you're clapping and worshiping. But that's all right. I love this because Peter, James, John, Thomas, Andrew, the rest of the disciples, listen, they were worn out. They were tired. They were exhausted. They felt like they didn't have anything else to give. But that day, they walked the right way saying, guys, can you believe it? We just fed 5,000 plus with seven little loaves and, and fish. We just fed it. They walked away from there saying that. Let's be real. They didn't know they had that in them until Jesus pulled it out of them. That day, Jesus brought all they had and in return saw, they saw the potential inside themselves that they never knew was there. Listen, I am convinced, church, everything you need to live, the life you've always wanted, the life that God has for you, it has been placed inside of you. It's just not been tapped into. I'll take it a step further. I believe everything you need to rise above the brokenness in your life, uh, all the mess in your life, all the break free from your past and to live the God-sized life, it's already inside of you. It's just waiting to be tapped into. But until you bring it to Jesus and say, here, this is all I have, Jesus then you will never realize what's inside of you. And it'll go unused and untapped. There's this great story in Judges chapter 3 um, about this guy, the Judge Ehud. And uh, this is a great story, actually. It's, uh, and I don't know if I like the story because I'm, I'm a guy that likes movies that are full of gratuitous violence. Uh, just, you know, I'm, yeah, I'm that guy. I like the shoot 'em up movies, the fighting movies. But this, this is a great story, and I'm telling you, you should read the Bible more. Uh, but the, the children, in Judges 3, the children of Israel are back to worshiping false gods. God has had enough of it, so he allows them to come under the rule of King Moab. 
uh, uh, king of Moab, King Eglon. And this guy was not a nice king. So King Eglon gets the Ammonites, the Amalekites to help him attack Israel. They capture Jericho for 18 long years. They suffer under the rule of King Eglon. Well, Israel begins to repent and cry out to God. God sends them, uh, sends them a hero by the, guy, uh, by the name of Ehud, Judge Ehud. And look at the details the Bible gives about him. Judges 3.15. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, the Lord again raised up a rescuer to save them. His name was Ehud, son of Gera, a left-handed man of the tribe of Benjamin. Uh, people from Louisiana. Oh, man. <laughs> Ehud is maybe the only Southpaw mentioned in the Bible. So I have to believe there's a reason that it brings up the detail. The way Ehud delivers Israel, I'm telling you, it is the stuff that movies are made, made of. Uh, and I have to believe there's a reason. Uh, here's what happened. Stay with me. Ehud made for himself. He's going to visit this king. They've got an end with the king. He's going to visit the king. So he makes for himself this 18-inch double-edged dagger that he can hide under his clothes on his thigh. And he goes in. They're there to present gifts to the king of Moab. Who The Bible, the Bible says this, not Kelly. The Bible says who was a very fat man. There's the reason behind that detail. After giving the gifts, they all left. But Ehud returns and says, hey, I've got a private message for the king. So he goes in to deliver this message. And when the king leans in to hear, it says that Ehud takes that dagger out, plunges it into the king's gut to the point, and this Bible says, I'm telling you, you should read the Bible, that the fat covers up the knife where you can't even see it. And so he leaves the king bleeding out, and no one knows. None of his, nobody knows until they come in and find the king dead, and then they have to lift. Never, never mind, let's move on. Um, here's why I'm saying that. Ehud became such a legend and a hero to the Benjamite people. So much so that the Benjamites then began to work on improving their left hand. They wanted to be able to fight as well with their left hand as they did with their right hand. All because of what Ehud did. Here's what uh, Mark Batterson says about this. Most of us tend to ignore our non-dominant hands. Why bother when using our strong hand is so much easier, so much better? But how you handle your weak hand affects more than your, than your present task. Get this. It affects the next generation. How you, how, how you handle your weakness, your weak hand, affects more than just you. It affects the next generation. He says, Ehud didn't just deliver the Israelites from the Moabites. He inspired generation of Benjamites. His brave wasn't just their breakthrough. It became their signature story. Here's my point. Yes, God wants to use those things that you're really good at. He wants to use all those things. But I'm going to tell you, it's when we lean into the weak areas of our life. 
that God begins to really use. See, people, they may admire you for your victories or your strength, but they connect with you through your weaknesses. You can get up here and talk about how I did this, all the battles is, and that's great, and people are like, wow, wow. But when you begin to talk about areas of your weakness, they lean, lean in and say, I can relate. I get it. I've been there. I'm telling you, and he is wanting to take those weaknesses in us and not just give us a breakthrough. See, I'm convinced there are many of you that you're living under generational curses. You watched mom, you, you saw addiction run rampant through your family, through your past, alcoholism, uh, drug addiction. You've watched obesity run rampant. You've watched all these things, and God has said, no, 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 I want you. I want that weakness. I want to use it, bring it to me, so I can break this off, and the rest of your family's line does not suffer with this. That's better, I'm telling you. Some of you need to be saying, thank God, because I'm there. And if God doesn't do something, my kids are going to be addicts. My kids are going to end up homeless. My kids are going to be this way. But God, break it off. But here's the truth. Jesus could have done these miracles without the disciples' help. He didn't need them. But he wanted them to see for themselves that there was something inside of them Something inside of them that when they come to him and say, all I've got is seven loaves and a few small fish. So let me ask you this. Who could you be if you could just see yourselves as seven loaves and a few small fish in the hands of God? Who could you be? And here's the third and final. I'm going to close with this. Unlocking that potential. Stop living for yourself. See, here's the truth. God wants to do things in and through you, not just for you. Did you hear that? Yeah, God wants to do things in you and through you, but not just for you. What the disciples received from Jesus that day. What did they begin to do immediately when Jesus broke the bread and gave it to them? What did they do? Give it away. Give it away. Hand it out. Remember last week I talked about who the first ones were that usually, the first to usually see the miracle. Who was it? Those that serve, think about this. The disciples weren't just the first to see the miracle. They were the only ones to see the miracle. All the people did knew was that they were getting bread. They didn't know where it came from. They didn't know the miracle that had just occurred. They were just taking the hand out from, from, from the disciples. The disciples saw the miracle. You want to tap into and unlock all that God has placed inside of you? Stop living for yourself. I mean, we live in a selfish world. Can we get real? We're selfish people. Selfishness has destroyed marriages. Selfishness has destroyed churches. 
It's destroyed business partners, relationships. And I was thinking about this. I, th I think it's Isaiah. I'm not. Sam would probably know. That guy's a walking Bible. But selfishness is what caused Lucifer to get kicked out of, kicked out of heaven. He said, I will do this. I will place myself here. I will be the most high. I will do this. I'm telling you, church, we've got to quit being selfish and living for just us. And we, we got to begin to live for something greater and someone greater. Man, there's some here. Maybe you're so, you're, you're, I've watched it, man, people that were so talented, gifted, and they would keep asking, God, why, why, if I've got all this talent, all this ability, why has nothing happened for me? Why am I so unfilled? Why am I not fulfilling my purpose in the life? You gave me these talents. And here's what I believe. I believe it's because most spend the majority of our lives and our time pursuing our dreams, trying to get what we want out of life instead of pursuing the dream God has for our lives. If you only want to receive, God cannot give you all that he wants because then you become a dam. And God wants you to be a river that flows through channels, flows through taking it to different people. Stop living for yourself. Both miracles in the same way. They all ate, were satisfied. Disciples picked up basketfuls of broken pieces left over. And both, both stories start out the same with Jesus saying, you feed them. What do you have? What are you bringing to the table? Well, we only have a few loaves, a couple fish. That's all we have, Jesus. And Jesus, if we're being honest, we can see, we can all see it's clearly not enough to, to do what needs to be. says, well, then enlarge your circle. Get outside the lines you've drawn from your, for yourself. Own what you do have. What is it that you do have? Stop complaining and griping and own what you do have. Stop living for yourself. I started out telling the story about David Goggins question he asked himself what am I capable of here's the rest of that he said seal training had pushed me to the brink several times but whenever it beat me down I popped up to take another pounding that experience made me hard but it also left me wanting more of the same that day he had days before he had ran a hundred miles in 24 hours and he finishes a marathon in an elite runner's time. He said the question was, what am I capable of? And here's what he said. I couldn't answer that question. But as I looked around the finish line that day and considered what I'd accomplished, it became clear that we are all leaving a lot on the table without even realizing it. We habitually settle for less than our best at work, in school, in our relationships, and on the playing field or race course. And I would add that we, have, we always settle for less when it comes with our relationship with God. 
He said, we settle as individuals, and then we teach our children to settle for less than their best. And all of that ripples out, emerges, and multiplies within our communities and our society as a whole. Goggin writes, in life, almost nothing will turn out exactly as we hope. There are always challenges, and whether we are at work or school or feeling tested within our, with, with, within our most intimate of important relationships, we will be tempted to walk away from commitments, give up on our goals and dreams, sell our happiness short at some point. And it's at that point that we must remember we haven't tapped even half of the treasure buried deep within our hearts, minds, and souls. Stand with me. It's in that moment that we're ready to give up, that we're ready to throw in the towel, that moment that we feel like we've given all we have to give. And Jesus says, I'm exhausted. Yeah. But there's more in you. God, I'm tired. Yeah. But there's more in you. I'm pushing you for a reason. I'm pushing you for a reason. There's going to be a time when you wonder what you're even doing in life. What's going on? That's when you need to realize that you just need to tap in to what God has placed deep inside of you. Paul, when he's talking to his spiritual son, Timothy, in 2 Timothy 1 6, he said this, I remind you, stir up the gift of God which is in you. It's in you. The potential, it's in you. Listen, you could tell me all day, I, I just don't believe it. I don't see it. That doesn't change the fact that it's in you. It's in you. It's there, waiting to be released, waiting to be unleashed. But somehow, some reason, we settle for just a blah Christianity. A Christianity that really does nothing for our community, for our families, or for our world. And we show up here on Sundays and we leave here. And we show up here on Sundays and we leave here. And the cycle continues until we decide, well, you know what? I'm just not even going to go to church anymore. God did not save you just to show up on a Sunday morning. And I, yeah, man, I'm going to nail this fact down here I'm trying to be really truthful and honest with you without hurting feelings God did not save you just to fill a seat and if that's all you're doing is filling a seat we need your seat 
We need your seed for people that are going to come in here hungry to make a difference and change. There are hundreds of other churches where that, that don't mind you just filling a seed. But my job as a pastor is not to make sure you just fill a seed. My job as a pastor is to make sure you leave here challenged. Even if you're angry at me, even if you're ticked off at me, but you leave here saying, I've got to do something. Here's a fact. We've given you one task for centuries. Invite people. We should be saying, guys, we're going to have to add three more performances because we don't have, en- we don't have enough capacity right now. And while I know that would be hard on our cast, our crew, our band, here's the thing. We're not living for ourselves. If it means more people getting saved, I'm willing to put in the time and effort. But I believe there is here. You're here. And I'm not going to do the bow your heads thing. None of that junk. This is family. If you're here, you say, you know what, Pastor? I've kind of grown complacent in my walk. Kind of just grown complacent. And just started showing up. And that's basically it. And I need the gift stirred back up in me. Can I tell you, I need that. I'm the pastor. I need it. Because there are days that I'm just like, come on, God, just give me a day off. I don't, yeah, come on. And have to stir it up, Kelly. Stir it up. It's there. Stir it up. Can I be, be honest? Say, I, I need a rekindling because I am complacent. I've grown complacent. Come on. I've got my hands up. Come and say, Kelly, you know what? I, I want revival in my family, in my community so bad that I want him to stir it up in me. Come on. Come on. Man, I'm telling you, I've got, I've got people in my family that are not saved. I've got a brother that needs to come to Jesus, him and his family. And I'm believing they're going to come to Jesus. That's you lift. Keep them raised. Father. you, I can pray it, but you need to tell him. Just begin to stir it up, Father. Stir it up in me. God, here's all I have to give. It's not much. Stir it up. I've just got a few fish. Stir it up. I've just got this brokenness. Here, here. It's all I've got. God, I've got this past. Here, take it. I don't feel like it's a lot. But if you say you can use it here, here it is. Stir it up in me. Stir it up in me. Stir it up. And I will make room for you to do whatever you want to.
those that are hungry for God to do something different in them. This is where the rubber meets the road. Step out. We're going to go back into this. Step out of your comfort zone. Find you. I know we don't have a lot of room up here, so if we've got them here, straight down the aisle, straight I don't care. But just saying, God, he, I'm going to show you how serious I am. I'm stepping out. I'm stepping out. You're serious. You want that stirred up within you? That's it. Come on. Start coming down right now. Come on. Make room for him to move in your life. Make room for him to begin to stir it up. Make room for him to begin to, to, to tap into that potential that you thought. Bring it to him. If that's you saying, hey, God, here's all I have. It's all I've got here. But what I've got is yours. I don't have much, but it's yours. God, I'm tired of doing church as normal. 